1: Thrusting space science into the audio dimension, this is Naked Astronomy.
2: How can we see stars as they first come into being? This month we're looking at ALMA, the Atacama Large Millimetre Array, possibly the most complicated telescope to date, that promises to peer into star-forming regions. This is Naked Astronomy with
3: me, Ben Valsler, and with Dominic Ford. Also coming up, we chat to some of the winners of the 2012 Astronomy Photographer of the Year competition, and find out what it takes to start taking pictures of the heavens.
2: Plus, we've got more answers to your space science questions.
1: Supported by the STFC, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy.
3: Now, exciting things are afoot in the Atacama Desert. As astronomers build what I'm told is the most complex telescope ever built, the Atacama Large Millimetre Array, or ALMA for short. Now, there's been quite a buzz about this telescope at recent astronomy meetings, because even though it's not yet completed, parts of the telescope are already functional and producing their first science results. Joining us now is Dr John Richer, reader in physics at the University of Cambridge. John, welcome to Naked Astronomy. Why are people so excited about ALMA?
4: Well, Dominic, I think the real reason is that it's the first very, very large telescope to be built, which can detect what we call millimetre waves or, uh, and submillimeter waves. So ALMA is a huge telescope which is going to explore a new part of the electromagnetic spectrum. And whenever you explore you know, a new frontier, a new way of imaging the universe, you expect you know fantastic new discoveries to come. And so I think that's why... Astronomers all around the world are busy writing proposals to use ALMA now that it's just starting to produce its uh, first sets of data. Nearly every astronomer's got an exciting research problem where ALMA can bring some genuinely new uh, images, new spectra, and new insights into the problems that astronomers are trying to solve.
3: And what kinds of objects can you see at these sub millimeter
4: wavelengths? Well, I think the thing to think about, the way to think about millimeter waves perhaps is as like a very f- long wavelength form of heat radiation you'll be familiar with uh, a coal fire, uh, where you can warm your hands on it as the flames flicker and as the flames go out and uh, the fire cools even when the flames have completely gone and the coals are still black, you can feel the heat radiation you know, when you put your hands against it so just imagine letting that fire, putting that fire into, into space, space is cold. What will happen is those coals will cool down to temperatures of only about 10 degrees above absolute zero. That's minus 263 degrees Celsius. But even at those very, very low temperatures, those 10 Kelvin uh, blocks of coal will still be emitting heat radiation. But that radiation, those, those heat waves will come out with a wavelength of about one millimetre. So those are the millimetre waves we're trying to detect. And so, essentially, millimetre waves are a way of probing the cold stuff in space. And what makes you think this cold stuff is there? Well, of course, when you look at the night sky, you see all the hot stuff. You see the white, bright stars shining and maybe a few, uh, couple of galaxies, if you're lucky. Uh, and that's a lot sort of hot gas, you know, lots of uh, 10,000 degree gas stars. But space is largely empty, and between the stars, it's cold. But it's not completely empty. There are a few atoms left over swimming around between the stars, what we call the interstellar medium. And if you take enough of the interstellar medium, a large enough volume of it, there's enough material in there to make a new star. So what we're essentially trying to study is the process by which those huge clouds of extremely dilute gas between the stars somehow condensed to form new generations of stars and so this is this, this constant recycling process in space is one of the fundamental things we're trying to understand with ALMA. Now ALMA's
3: being built in quite an exotic location at an altitude of five kilometres in the Atacama
4: Desert. Why is that location so attractive to you? So millimetre waves are very prone to be absorbed by water So if we tried to build a telescope on a sea-level site, like, for example, our observatory uh, just outside Cambridge uh, near Barton, those millimetre waves would be absorbed very rapidly in the upper parts of the atmosphere the first time they basically come across a water molecule. Um, So even on a very dry day uh, in, in Cambridge, for example, looking up, there's a lot of water in even in a clear blue sky, invisible even without cloud. There's water there, and that's the enemy of of millimetre waves because they just absorb the millimetre waves very strongly. So to build ALMA, we or to do any millimetre waves, you need to build a telescope either in space, so you're completely above the atmosphere, and we've done that certainly with with uh, some satellite missions like the Herschel satellites, very well known. But for a very big telescope like like ALMA, we have to do it on the ground for reasons of cost. And so we go to the the next best thing, uh, to space, and the next best thing we found is um, a very high plateau uh, in northern Chile, which, as you say, is 5,000 metres above sea level. And once you get up, up there, it's about... 96% of the water is below you. You've driven through the water of the Earth's atmosphere and when you look up, there's only a few percent of that water left and that gives a fighting chance for the millimetre waves to come through the atmosphere and get to our telescope.
3: I guess it must be quite a difficult place to work, there can't have been power lines or roads there when
4: you started work. Yeah, certainly, it's a it's quite a remote location, so that does add some complexities. Altitude sickness is the obvious one that springs to mind. It's a it's a difficult altitude to work at. It's five thousand meters, seventeen thousand feet is you're pretty much at the limit where humans can really exist at all, uh, and you have to be very well acclimatized. So what what we do is we we essentially run this telescope almost like a, a space telescope. We take it up there in pieces. We park the bits. We join them together. Then we retreat to our operating base, which is at 3,000 metres above sea level, or about 10,000 feet, and do as much work as we can from that low-level facility. It's about 25 uh, miles down the road. And then, of course, when things go wrong or we need to go and do some maintenance, we drive back up the road, fix what we can, come back down again, and again do the operation at some low altitude. So that's our primary way of uh, minimising the dangers of working at high altitude. Now, I gather ALMA
3: isn't quite finished yet.
4: What's its current status? That's right. So think about ALMA. You, you've got to visualise um, 66 separate radio antennas uh, of a couple of different sizes. The, the smaller ones are 7 metres across, but the majority of the antennas are, are 12 metres across. So it's very large, very precise radio dishes. And when ALMA's complete, we'll have 66 antennas working uh, together as a, as a single uh, instrument. And as of uh, today, actually, I checked the, um, the website. It tells you how far they've got with the commissioning. And I think we're at 43 antennas today have have been delivered to what we call the high site, the, the, the uh, 5000 uh, metre site. And so, um, you know, we're about two thirds of the way towards completing um, the array. But bear in mind, we, you know, b- groundbreaking began on this project. Uh, I was there in 2003. Uh, and so we're nearly... Uh, We're nine years into this construction project, but we're within probably about 12 months of of completion. So talk
3: me through, if you point the telescope at a star-forming region, what would you expect
4: to see? Going back to the idea of this heat radiation from very cold objects, because we're not seeing lumps of of cold, big lumps of cold in space, they don't exist. But actually, between the stars, there do exist very small, finely ground-up bits of cold, soot-like particles, which astronomers call dust. And these are tiny particles, you know, micron-sized particles, typically, uh, at a grain about 10 degrees above absolute zero. But they act as little radiators of, of heat, and so one of the first things we we look for in ALMA is to look for that characteristic uh, heat radiation. Is what we call has what we call a, a broad spectrum, uh, and we can map out where all the dust particles are in these star-forming regions. And by measuring the different frequencies, we can also work out the temperature of the grains. And so that's that's a very important measurement in itself, because it allows us to f- to estimate the temperature and the mass of these clouds. And that gives you the first clues, really, as to whether the clouds are likely to collapse under gravity. But there's also a, a second important thing we, we tune ALMA to look at, and that's uh, molecules. So Although I've talked about the dust, in fact, most of the mass in these clouds is made of molecules. We call these things generally molecular clouds. So what we think happens in in space is that um, when hydrogen atoms get into dense enough regions, they find a partner, they find another hydrogen atom, they bump into one another, and if the conditions are right, they join to form a hydrogen molecule. And that starts a whole process of molecule formation in space, which is in itself a very exciting story. And every molecule will emit a characteristic set of uh, spectral uh, features, many of them at millimetre wavelengths. So we often tune ALMA to very special frequencies and we search for a particular molecule, carbon monoxide, hydrogen cyanide. In fact, a very exciting discovery last week was the first uh, sugar was discovered in a protostellar disk by ALMA.
3: I guess a really interesting question is whether planets might form in these star-forming regions. And I guess the chemistry is very important for telling you whether those might be habitable planets.
4: Yeah, indeed. I mean, both those issues are two of the key reasons we are building ALMA. So first of all, ALMA is the first telescope at this frequency, which can make very detailed pictures. And the drive to make these very detailed pictures is to make pictures of a new solar system in the process of formation. So if you wind the clock back four and a half billion years here, what we would see around us, there'd be no Earth, there'd be a a protostar, the Sun, forming with a disk of material swirling around it what's called a protoplanetary disk. And those objects, those protoplanetary disks where planets form, are exactly the, the one of the main objects that ALMA has been designed to, to, to image. So we're already making pictures of these new these protoplanetary disks and seeing the conditions in which planets form. And as well as just seeing when and how the planets form in the disks, we then indeed use a lot of the spectral capabilities of ALMA to ask you know, what molecules are in the vicinity of those planets when they collapse. I mentioned briefly earlier that you know sugar has been uh, the simplest sugar has recently been discovered close to in the planet forming zone of a nearby protostar. So that's very exciting in itself. Because sugars are a building block of RNA, for example, and um, so finding them there with with alcohols, uh, with other long with long chain carbon molecules is, is very intriguing.
2: That's John Richer, and we'll hear more from him later on in the show. But first, Dominic, what have you seen in the space science news this month?
3: Well, we've often talked in Naked Astronomy about the search for exoplanets, planets orbiting stars other than our own sun. And to give a brief overview of where that search has reached, there are various techniques that have been used to detect these planets, either by looking at how a light from their host stars dims when they pass in front of those stars from our line of sight, or by looking at their gravitational influence on their host stars. But this is quite a young field. The first planet orbiting a star other than our own sun was only discovered in 1992. But since then the discoveries have come thick and fast and as of now I think 838 planets have been discovered. Though when I checked this morning it was only 837. So these discoveries really are coming in on a more or less daily, certainly weekly, basis. And a lot of the recent discoveries have been coming from the Kepler Space Telescope, which is staring at 150,000 stars waiting to see if planets pass in front of them. And to date, it has identified well over 2,000 candidate planets. So on the basis of that evidence, it really does seem that if you pick any star at random in the night sky, there's quite a good chance it might have planets. And people have even coined the term exoplanet fatigue to describe the fact that, well, perhaps these discovery announcements aren't quite as exciting as they were five years ago when they were really new and novel. It does seem
2: now that if we're going to talk about an exoplanet there has to be something special about it. It's got to orbit a binary pair or it's got to be very earth-like or incredibly hot or it can't just be exciting because it's a new exoplanet.
3: That's right and I thought we should talk about it again this month because three press releases have caught my eye announcing the discoveries of planets in quite unusual environments. And the first of these was a paper in the journal Science by Jerome Oroz. And what he's detected is a pair of planets orbiting a pair of stars. So you've got two stars orbiting one another very close together. And then a bit further out, you've got two planets in circular orbits around this pair of stars. So if you were living on one of those planets, you wouldn't have one sun in the sky. You would have two suns very close together, circling around one another in your sky.
2: But that in itself isn't a new discovery, is it? The first planet that they found that did orbit a binary pair, they named Tatooine after Luke's home planet in Star Wars, which, of course, you'll remember, seemed to have two suns.
3: That's right. I think that planet was discovered back in January. But what we seem to be picking up here is the fact that these aren't rare systems. Um, This, I think, is in fact the third discovery. This one has two planets. This is the first one with more than one planet. These objects really do seem to be stable, um, but we don't understand how they could have formed. Given the gravitational perturbations, as these two stars orbit around one another, the gravitational field where the planets are will be changing and you would expect that to disrupt the orbits and over periods of millions of years to cause those systems to be unstable.
2: Are we definitely certain it's a pair of planets and it's not some sort of artefact of the fact that it is a binary pair?
3: We know that these are objects quite like Jupiter because we have sizes for them. So we know that they are very similar to the outer members of our own solar system. Uh, and that work was published, as I say, in Science by Jerome Ross. So that's the first. You said there were three releases that all came out all
2: about exoplanets. What else have we had?
3: That's right. Sam Quinn, writing in the astrophysical journal Letters this month, looked at a star in the Beehive Cluster, which is quite a bright cluster of stars, 500 light years away. You can see it with a pair of binoculars in the northern sky. That cluster is about 600 million years old. And you might not expect that to be a place where planets would be stable for very long because you've got a lot of stars in quite a small space and you would expect them to gravitationally influence one another. We know this cluster is bound together by gravity and you might expect that to disrupt the orbits of planets. But in fact, we have spotted a planet in this cluster.
2: So the lesson seems to be that planets are absolutely everywhere, everywhere We do expect them, we find them, and everywhere we don't expect them, we also find them. What was
3: the third release? In the journal Nature, Ruth Murray Clay announced the discovery of not planets, but a protoplanetary disk which might have formed into planets were it not plunging into the central black hole in the centre of our our galaxy. So this is a very dense stellar cluster around the centre of our galaxy, Lots of gravitational influences going on, including the black hole itself, which weighs 6 million solar masses. This is quite an extreme environment, not somewhere where you might expect fragile planets to be forming. Now, this system hadn't formed planets, but if it hadn't had this very close encounter, but stripped this protoplanetary disk off into that black hole, it, it seems that disk might have formed into planets. What tells
2: us that it's a protoplanetary disk and not just a collection of rubble that happens to be near a black hole. Is there a particular signature that says this would have formed planets?
3: So what we see here is a star which has recently had a close encounter with the black hole. The star was was mildly disrupted by, by that gravitational encounter, but the star has survived. But we see this disk of hydrogen and helium that has been ripped off it and which is falling into the black hole. And we interpret that as being a protoplanet disk that was around this star and is no longer there and is falling into the black hole. This
2: really does seem to be a, a golden age for discovering planets. I wonder what the next step was going to be. We know that Kepler is looking at millions of stars, but what about pulsars? What about brown dwarfs? What about free agents? Are we going to start looking in even
3: more unusual
2: places and finding yet more planets?
3: I think the telescope which is really going to answer those questions is ALMA because that will be able to look for a very cold material like protoplanetary disks around objects like, as you say, brown dwarfs, much smaller stars, much more distant stars, and begin to understand the mechanisms by which these rather enigmatic objects form.
2: You're listening to Naked Astronomy with me, Ben Valsler, and with Dominic Ford. This month, we invited Sarah Thompson along to join us. Sarah is a PhD student at the Cavendish Laboratory, and she's going to be answering some of your questions, as well as asking one or two of her own. Sarah, thanks for joining us. Now, first of all, what is it that you're working on?
5: I work on detectors that are used for telescopes like ALMA, so that you can actually detect the light of the thing you want to look at and there are lots of perfectly good detector types of technology out there fully developed and working very well. What I'm trying to do is make detectors that work in their own way far better than they did before or at least a little bit better than they did before.
2: So how do you go about doing that? What sorts of improvements can we make?
5: Well for example one of the biggest drives in astrophysics at the moment is to get bigger and bigger arrays. And that means more and more detectors. And it actually comes down to a very simple problem, which is actually quite difficult to solve, which is that a lot of detectors, while being very powerful or very sensitive, are in fact relatively complex devices. So you have many wires for each detector or the computer systems required to translate what the detectors give out can be very complicated, or it can be as simple as actually manufacturing each individual device is a complicated process which can go wrong in a variety of ways and leads to, uh, out of, say, a 100 detectors you try and make, 50 of them not actually working, and so your expenses go up. This leads people to look at different kinds of detector technology. For example, the detectors I work on, kinetic inductance detectors, they are desirable not because they work better than other superconducting detectors. In fact, at the moment, because they're a relatively young detector technology, they work only about as well as other fully developed detector technologies out there. However, they are incredibly simple devices that you can manufacture very easily. And the best thing about them is that each device, millions of the same devices, or at least thousands, can be all read off using the same wire in essence so you can, you only need one computer system and one set of wires for like thousands of detectors so instantly building much larger arrays such as the SKA and armor becomes a much more simple and cheaper process
2: I've got an incredibly simple radio detector at home. Uh, It's stuck on the side of my house and it picks up television for me. How do the sorts of detectors you're talking about differ from these terrestrial television or or radio type receivers?
5: Well, your detector technology you use is going to depend um, largely on what kind of frequencies you want to detect. At radio length, like with terrestrial TV and with your radio, you have an antenna which the light comes in with a certain wavelength and in the antenna it causes, basically, the electrons inside the antenna to move up and down at the same frequency that the light was moving. So basically you translate your light wave into an electromagnetic wave inside the antenna and this is then just taken into the circuitry inside your house and your TV. But when you have shorter wavelengths like optical light, what you see the incoming light not as a wave but as a particle, as a photon, which transmits heat to a specific area and you translate that heat back into an electromagnetic system with some kind of detector. My detectors can work with both the radio end and the optical end. They take any incident wave and they change it into heat.
2: Thanks, Sarah. And now let's go back to John Richer, who is with us today to explain why astronomers are so excited about ALMA, the Atacama Large Millimeter Array. Now, John, you explained earlier that the ability to differentiate molecules is going to be key to learning more about planetary formation and the chemistry that occurs in star-forming regions. With optical astronomy, we split the light into a spectrum and we can identify different chemicals by the sort of characteristic spectral signature. But how do we do it with
4: radio telescopes? What we're seeing with the molecules uh, are actually changes typically in their rotational state. We call it rotational spectroscopy. So let's take... Uh, the most common molecule in space after molecular hydrogen. It turns out to be carbon monoxide, rather oddly enough, that rather nasty poisonous uh, molecule on on Earth. But in in interstellar clouds, about one in 100,000 particles in in a typical cloud is carbon monoxide. And when it jumps its rotational states from one quantum state to another, that's when it kicks out a, a very specific radio wave at a millim- with a wavelength, in fact, of, um, say, you know, 1.3 millimetres, say one of the transitions. So we tune our our detectors and pick up that, that line. And if we catch it at the right frequency, if we see a line at the right frequency, we know that's carbon monoxide. But that's one of maybe 100 different molecules we've so far detected in space.
2: How do you tune a radio telescope i can I can visualize how you would tune for visible light. You can put filters in that block out the other ones.
4: How do you do that with radio? Well, it's much easier, of course, than the radio, because everyone, well, if people listen to this on a conventional terrestrial broadcast, you know, they'll, they'll be listening in their car, whatever. You just turn on your car radio, push a button, and it tunes across the spectrum. It reads out, you know, 96.3 uh, megahertz, what have you. So it's just a digital tuning in your radio. So we use exactly the same technology. We simply have um, controllable electronics that generates, that, that allows us to tune the radio waves we're detecting to exactly the right frequency. I mean, there is... Maybe one extra complication we could uh, add to that, which some, some listeners who, who know a little about radio may be thinking about. hang on, the frequencies of these radio waves we're detecting are extraordinarily high. So let's take that carbon monoxide molecule example again. One of its transitions is at, say, 230 gigahertz. It's 100 times higher than conventional radio technology works at. So indeed, you We can't build a radio receiver for 230 gigahertz in the same way as a terrestrial radio receiver. So we do a very clever trick. The first thing we do is we translate the signal we detect to low frequency. And that's one of the fundamental principles of radio astronomy. It's called heterodyning. So we get an incoming signal at high frequency. And then we shift it down to low frequency using a a specialised bit of super cool electronics that we actually design in in the Cavendish Laboratory. And then we can tune it like any other radio.
5: How do you decide which point on the sky you want to point it at? I mean, are you scanning the sky for new star-forming regions? Or do you already know star-forming regions of interest that you want to examine in more detail?
4: Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, there are two two parts to the answer. The first one is that Alma has what we call a very small field of view. So that means that when ALMA points uh, towards one p- patch of sky, it really sees only a tiny region around uh, that, that, that patch of sky. It's like you've got tiny blinkers on your own eyes. So ALMA isn't the way to find new areas of, uh, of interesting objects in space, typically. So what we usually do is use smaller telescopes, uh, so-called survey telescopes, which are have been designed essentially to map the sky. And I guess we're very fortunate right now because we've just had two fantastic surveys done done by two satellites, uh, the Herschel satellite and the Planck satellite, which operated about these frequencies. And they've mapped the whole sky rather coarsely, you know, with what we call low resolution. But nonetheless, in those Planck and Herschel uh, all-sky maps, we can pick out regions which we think are tremendously exciting and choose those to look at. And I guess the second part of the answer is, you know, who, who then actually looks at which bits of sky, and that's done by one of these... Uh, international peer-reviewed scientific competitions. So every six months we have a competition for observing time on ALMA. And at the last one, for example, you know, we had 1,000 proposals from scientists and collaborations all around the world, and the best 40 or 50 were selected to observe their objects. Um, So that just shows that it's probably the most oversubscribed, the the most competitive telescope that's ever been built, which proves how popular it is.
3: This is Naked Astronomy with me, Dominic Ford, and with Ben Vowsler. Still to come, our guests John Richter and Sarah Thompson will be answering more of your science questions. But now, have you ever looked up at a pristine night sky and wanted to take that image
2: home with you to forever remind you of our place in the universe? Sadly, it's not as simple as just pointing a camera straight up and pressing the button. Taking photos of objects in space or astrophotography is a science and an art in itself. To celebrate the best in astrophotography, the Astronomy Photographer of the Year Awards were set up by the Royal Observatory, where Marek Kukula is the public astronomer.
3: The competition really came about just over four years ago. We were starting to notice how many amazing amateur shots were coming online. The development of digital photography and the availability of really good telescopes in the amateur market was making it possible for non-professionals to take pictures that were as stunning as photos taken by really professional observatories so we thought we needed to recognize this and we thought the way to do it was in a global competition and it's gone from strength to strength we've had more entries this year than ever before. Photography
2: has been called the art of painting with light but when the source of that light is many millions of miles away you may need to use a different set of brushes. For Pete Lawrence, presenter of the BBC Sky at Night and one of the judges at this year's competition, astrophotography is very different to its terrestrial cousin.
1: Oh, completely different. If you're doing, for example, a deep sky image, it could take you many, many days to actually get it right, to get it balanced right, to get it processed, to get all the calibration in there. For example, if you take a photograph of a deep sky object with a long exposure, what you'll get in there is is lots of noise. You'll get lots of background noise, which looks like a mottling. You'll get lots of hot pixels, which look Like stars, which is very unfair at all. (laughs) They just disguise themselves as stars. You also get things like dust motes, which appear, and vignetting, where the edge of the eyepiece holder is clipping the incoming light. So basically, to get rid of all that, and you can get rid of all that, you have to do a calibration routine. And that calibration routine (laughs) needs a lot of effort to get it right. Once you've got the images calibrated, you then have to process them and put them all together and to color balance them. It just takes hours and hours to get it right. So when you look at these photographs, you think somebody's just pointed the telescope at the stars, put a camera on there, no way. It's it's hours and hours of work behind them.
2: There were a number of categories for this year's competition, including deep space, our solar system and people and space. Each had a winner and one, an image of M51, the Whirlpool Galaxy by Martin Pugh in Australia, was deemed to be the overall winner. But of course, each of the judges, including Olivia Johnson, formerly of the Royal Observatory, had their own favourites.
0: I've had favourites from almost all the categories over the years. People in Space is always an interesting one because it allows the photographer to be maybe a bit more inventive than than it would be if you are taking a picture of a, a deep-sky object that will look the same for millions and millions of years and to sort of tell stories in the photographs. And I think a lot of the ones in, in this year's competition have told really compelling stories. I absolutely love the winner of the our solar system section this year of the cloudy, moody picture of the Venus transit. It's one of these events that you wait a long, long time to see. You've heard, I'm sure, loads of people saying that you won't see this again for a very long time. I love how the the image itself gives you a sense of the struggle to see one of these once-in-a-lifetime sights. You can see the cloud, and it's a really moody, dark picture, and just this tiny little glimpse of this very, very special event through the break in the clouds. I think it's wonderful.
2: Chris Warren took that category-winning image of the transit of Venus. So it's taken with a monochrome camera through a hydrogen alpha telescope, which is a specific telescope for taking images of the sun. It filters out most of the light, apart from a very, very, very small frequency of hydrogen alpha. It sort of sums up what I felt during the event. And there was also, whilst the image was being taken, there was a crowd of other people around me They were all really anticipating seeing it. We all thought the clouds would get in the way, but we just got this glimpse. And I think the image sums that up really nicely. For those that don't have their own equipment, there is also a robotic scope category, where people can submit images that were taken remotely using robotic telescopes all over the world. These scopes are made available to amateur astronomers as well as professionals, and often used by school astronomy clubs. Because of that, this year's winner also had a rightful claim to the Young Astronomy Photographer category.
5: I'm Thomas Reed, and I'm from Swindon. I took a picture of the Sunflower Galaxy, which is basically a galaxy which looks like a sunflower. But um, it's got very high detail and it's in beautiful colours. It used the Bradford robotic telescope, which I think is in Tenerife. And I operated it remotely over the internet. And I just kind of clicked on it because I was a bit mystified by it and I just wanted to know what I would get from it and I got a really good picture.
2: The shortlisted images are now on exhibition at the Royal Observatory Greenwich until February 2013 but should they inspire you how do you get into astrophotography? pete lawrence
1: astrophotography doesn't have to be expensive or complicated although it invariably ends up that way you can just take a, a camera outside do a long exposure with it point it at the stars on the tripod and you get star trails if you have a telescope which is pointed at, for example, the moon. You can point a camera down the eyepiece of the telescope. You can point a camera phone down the eyepiece of a telescope and take what is quite an impressive picture of details on the moon. So the key here, and this is what happened to me, is that you do something like that and it hooks you in. And then you go online and you find other people who have got the same passion and you gradually begin to learn the processes.
2: Pete Lawrence from the BBC's Sky at Night programme. And now, with more astronomical news and things to watch out for in the night sky this month, here's Robert Massey from the Royal Astronomical Society.
6: Astronomy is is very much a dynamic science, and the nice thing about it is, is one of those things where just occasionally the public can see some quite exciting stuff quite unpredictably. And a good example of that is the fireball, or bolide if you prefer, a very bright meteor that was seen over the UK and, and Ireland over the weekend. And this came in on... The 21st of September, it moved from east to west across the sky, mostly mostly seen across northern England. Um, Possibly there was a sighting in Belgium. It seems to have crossed the North Sea, and then it seems possibly to have ended its flight somewhere out over the Atlantic, beyond the west of Ireland. And then there's something of an open question as to whether anything actually made it through the atmosphere and landed. Quite probably not in this case, but it was spectacular. And events like this are when you get. Either, say, a piece of space debris, so something from a satellite that that people have put together, or a a natural bit of rock coming in at a a reasonable speed. And they they slam into the atmosphere, they get incredibly hot, but because they're somewhat bigger than average, a lot, lot of meteor shooting stars that we see tend to be rather faint. You can get quite a spectacular show, even if it's perhaps something the size of a boulder. Looking at the analysis, a fair number of people saw this. Uh, one good analysis I've seen suggests it probably was a natural object because the direction it was traveling, which is actually opposite to the way that satellites go around the Earth. And also there are previous examples of this. For example, back in the early 1990s, there was something called the Peekskill meteorite that landed in uh, New York State and actually made a dent in someone's, someone's car bonnet. So it does really demonstrate that you think that you're completely disconnected from what's going up in the sky. Actually, sometimes the sky sort of comes to pay a visit and bits of rock come down from space. And this is an example of
2: something like that. It's very nice that people were so excited about it, really. But how do you actually go about doing the analysis? What do we need to do in order to say, right, this was definitely a piece of space junk or definitely something natural?
6: I think it's very hard to be absolutely definite about these things. Reading the reports, from from what I can see, the suggestion initially was it was space junk simply because it was slow-moving and bright. But the counter-argument is it was going in the wrong direction. Because most of the satellites, if you've ever seen the International Space Station, for example, go from west to east across the sky, this was going east to west. And if you imagine something coming into the Earth's atmosphere, coming out of orbit around the Earth, it would carry on in that same direction of travel, at least more or less. And there are very few satellites that go in the opposite direction. So best guess from that, you can work out the orbital path from that, is that it probably was a natural piece of rock. And it's been suggested that it's connected with the Aton family of asteroids, which are a family of asteroids that orbits slightly inside the earth's orbit around the sun so a rock connected with that but it's very much about looking at the track looking at where people see it at different sites on the ground if you get pictures which include say the ground as well and you can estimate how high it was above the horizon in degrees that's very helpful because you can triangulate you can work out exactly how high it was at different points and thereby work out how it came into the earth's atmosphere If you're very well organised and you have things like spectroscopic analysis, you can even tell what it's made of. I haven't heard of anybody else being
2: able to do that in this case, at least not yet. And on the topic of exciting things to see in the night sky, it looks like we're going to have a particularly impressive comet to look at next year.
6: Absolutely right. At the end of uh, December next year, I've just heard today that there's the prospect of an extraordinarily bright comet now. I should stress that any predictions around this kind of thing are quite tentative it's a long way off more than a year away before this thing reaches its closest point to the sun and then the earth but if the predictions bear out it could be one of the brightest ones of modern times um, it would come in quite close to the sun it would come in within about two million kilometers from the sun and when it gets to that point it could be spectacularly bright now it's the kind of object that may be so close to the sun that to see it safely, you actually have to stand in shadow. In other words, put the sun behind a wall, but you still then might be able to see this thing in daylight next to the sun. And there are there are examples of that in history. That, in fact, even in the 1960s, comet ikeya Zeki was uh, one of this class that was seen in that way. They're they're called. Sun grazer objects simply because they come so close in. They tend to lose a lot of material as they come close in. Sometimes they break up because of the, the intense heat of the sun there. Uh, and so it, it is the case that you, rather than having one comet coming in, you might end up with three coming out because it's broken into three. And I should talk a bit about as well about the discovery of it. It was done by, it discovered by something called the International Scientific Optical Network. A Russian astronomer and a, a Belarusian astronomer found it. And uh, very quickly, there was a follow-up by actually by an amateur astronomer, Nick Howells, in the UK, who helped to refine its orbit. And then they quite quickly realized that it was going to come close to the sun and in such a way that it had given its size and so on. And the fact we can see it so far from the sun already, it was going to come fairly close to the earth as well and thereby be a very spectacular object. All I can say is watch this space, really, because something like this could be extraordinary. It may be that the predictions don't bear out it may be that the comet fizzles out on the way in which which sometimes happens but it does sound quite promising and certainly something to look forward to in in
2: just before christmas next year so we'll keep our eyes peeled to the skies for that one on a very different tack though it looks like finally the private sector is really making steps into getting into space properly That's right.
6: What we've got now is uh, an example of two companies that are following the NASA strategy, at least two companies following the NASA strategy of resupplying the International Space Station. One of the decisions that NASA has made is obviously they've ended the shuttle program and they're looking for private operators just to ferry astronauts to and from the space station because at the moment they depend entirely on the Russians and their Soyuz transport vehicle, which is fine as far as it goes, but I suppose there are issues of national pride in the Americans want to be able to take their astronauts into space. So there are two companies, firstly SpaceX with its Dragon spacecraft is working successfully now and at least bringing cargo to the space station. I'm sure it's only a matter of time before that's able to bring people to. And then there's the the Cygnus vehicle built by Thales sort of Corporation, which is doing much the same thing. So you've got a degree of competition actually. I mean, they may do complementary activities, but I'm sure there's a competitive element there too. And My hope is that what that allows NASA to do is to think bigger, to look at the things like missions to Mars and so on, not that that that's a trivial thing to do or perhaps a mission to a nearby asteroid or perhaps even a return to the moon. But it it doesn't seem like such a bad decision that they should focus on the big things that these private companies at the moment really couldn't manage and and to allow them to supply the the space station in this way.
2: And thinking of Future space missions. You've recently had a meeting where you're looking at the directions we might take. What sorts of things have you been talking about?
6: Well, we're actually going to have the meeting in in a couple of weeks' time, and it's going to cover really almost a wish list for UK space science missions. There was a an item in the perhaps a little known space innovation and growth strategy that came out a couple of years ago, which recommended that the UK should, and I quote, initiate and lead at least three exploration science missions by 2030. So. The UK scientists are now getting their act together, talking to the European Space Agency, talking to each other about the kind of things that could be done, and it is a quite exciting list. Uh, you won't find details of most of these yet because they're, they're being developed. But for example, there's the idea of sending a, uh, a mission around the poles of the Sun again to look at it there. That was done by the Ulysses uh, spacecraft many years ago, but this would be something rather closer uh, to investigate uh, particles above thunderclouds. So, in other words, from orbit, took over the earth to to study uh stars again using spectroscopy and, and really really some great ideas so all credit to the people for coming forward to talk about these things and i guess that if they're putting that into the european space agency program provided at least we have a little bit of money from the uk to make them happen then we could see some great science happening i mean the the recent decision for example to send the juice terrible name really i think they need to improve the acronym on this but it is under discussion the juice mission to jupiter for example is, is a good case in point that UK planetary scientists, UK space scientists, are quite imaginative and, and unfortunately, as you have to be in these times, are quite good at making a small amount of money going a long way.
3: Robert
2: Massey from the RAS.
3: We've just got time left for a few of your questions, which we'll put to our guests John Richer and Sarah Thompson. First, we've had a question from Brandon Lewis, who wonders, because the electromagnetic spectrum is a continuum and radio waves are just long wavelength light waves, why do radio telescopes look so different from optical telescopes? And could you just put a very high frequency short wavelength receiver on the back of a radio telescope and convert it into an optical telescope?
4: What do you think, John? The first thing you'd have to ask yourself was, can you see a reflection of yourself in that telescope mirror? And if the answer to that question is yes, then there's a chance the answer to the question might be yes. Now, some radio telescope reflectors, some mirrors, are made of chicken wire. In fact, if the, ra- if the wavelength is so long, you don't need to build a continuous sheet of metal. So you just put some some chicken wire or reflector wires, and that will reflect the radio waves. And clearly, you're not going to get an optical image with one of those. For high frequencies, we use, say, a solid sheet of um, aluminium. So the ALMA antennas, for example, use um, solid aluminium sheets, which we machine to high precision and make the surface out of those. Now, when I look at myself in one of the ALMA panels, I get a rather fuzzy reflection myself, and that's because the the surface, the the finish we've put on, isn't accurate enough to make a perfect um, optical reflection that you'd need for uh, an optical telescope. So in general we don't spend the money to make our radio telescopes good enough to make optical images. Um, but if if we did put a very, very polished mirror on our radio telescopes they would indeed focus optical light and we could indeed make a picture out of the focus uh, if they were precise enough.
3: Now my image of a visible light telescope is a cylindrical tube that you point at the sky whereas radio telescopes and ALMA are arrays of many dishes spread across a large area. Why do you have so many antennas?
4: Well, the first thing to realise is that any one of the radio antennas is by itself a complete telescope and can be used to make pictures of the sky. The way you do that typically is you... Scan the telescope, the single telescope around the sky and build up a picture of the sky as you move it around. So, as you move it around, you detect the uh, the radio waves, maybe detect it as a voltage, and, and store that in a computer. And you can build up a picture with one telescope. However, because radio waves are very long in comparison to light waves, the, the resolution of the image, what you make like that, is very poor. So, in fact, typically, if you take one of the ALMA antennas, by itself, the picture it sees is about the same has about the same level of detail as that of the human eye, which is pretty good, but not good enough for uh, astronomers. Uh, it's about twenty arc seconds. If uh, for those who know that unit, um, that's about uh, what is that? About a hundred times smaller than the width of the uh, of, of of the sun, say. So we want to make t- images with much higher resolution, much more detail. That's how we can detect protoplanetary disks and high redshift objects and see what's going on inside. So the only way to do that is to build a very large telescope. To to image a protoplanetary disk at a wavelength of one millimetre, we need a telescope which is about 10 kilometres across. That's clearly impractical to build as a single piece of, of metal. So what we do is we build separate pieces of the telescope, in fact individual telescopes, spread them out over a 10 kilometre plane and if we combine the signals correctly by a very clever technique called aperture synthesis we can mimic the effect of a 10 kilometre diameter telescope
2: do we have a problem with regards the energy of the radiation that's actually coming in because if we've got a device that's designed to pick up radio waves and then you put x-rays into it then presumably that's going to overblow the equipment and, and not be any use
4: there are some sources of interference that can damage our receiver systems. They're quite rare, actually. In fact, one of our biggest problems with ALMA is there's a, a satellite that flies over the site every day or so, broadcasting down radio waves at us, very bright radio waves. It's monitoring Earth's cloud patterns, and if that gets into our receivers, that actually can blow some of our sensitive uh, electronics. But in fact, cosmic ray strikes are relatively rare. And so, in fact, our main source of of problems for our systems is uh, human radio frequency interference. So um, cell phones uh, and such like, you know, high frequency clocks on on computers, um, satellites, aeroplanes and such like. So interference from those can get into our systems and has to be carefully removed when we analyze the data.
5: I think what you sometimes find is not necessarily damage to your systems, but certainly depending on the type of detectors you are using inside your telescope, there is only a certain range uh, over which the detector can respond and and give you a change in, in signal, which is proportional to the change in energy you have seen from the external light coming in. So if you put light into your telescope that is of a much higher energy than the light the telescope was designed to um, receive, then it's not that you damage your detector, but what you do is something called saturate it, which means that the in- the light coming in is so high in energy that the- your detector response is instantly goes to maximum and just stays there. So any small variations in that energy, which is normally the kind of thing you'd be hoping to receive to get information from that light, just doesn't show up. And you can't process that information, basically. So it doesn't damage it. But it's another reason why the telescope might not work for, basically, waves outside that which it was designed to work at.
4: Yeah, another interesting angle on this, perhaps, is um, when we observe with a telescope like ALMA, it's always daytime. Uh, And what I mean by that is that the sky is always bright at radio wavelengths, uh, one millimetre wavelength, for example. And it's very, very bright. And in fact, the signals we are detecting typically are a million times less bright than the brightness of the whole sky above us. And even when the sun sets, the sky is still glowing, uh, heat radiation coming into our telescope, which remember these are essentially our heat-detecting heat telescopes. So in that sense, it's always daytime, and we're always detecting signals. It's like you know trying to detect a, a match held up in front of a car headlight, that kind of a problem.
2: We've had a question from Mohammed Al-Hakim, who wants to know why all planets orbit in almost the same plane. Sarah, what do you think?
5: I'm not sure, actually, if that's true, but I'll, I'll get back to that. Certainly, it basically all relates back to what John was saying earlier about the formation of the solar system. Our current most popular model says that as this giant molecular cloud collapses and starts to form a star you get a disk forming around the star called a protoplanetary disk, which is also full of molecules from the cloud. And what you find is this disk, which is orbiting around the star, which will become, in the long run, our sun, there's several mechanisms going on. Some of this disk is being attracted to the star by the star's gravitational pull and falling into the star and will become part of the star in the long run, and some of it is being flung out into space. But the rest of it is kind of in a fairly stable orbit around the the Sun. Now, inside this disk itself, we find regions of higher density than others. There may be some larger molecules there or some larger grains than the others. And what happens here is, in these regions, because you have a more dense region than around it, you again have, like in the protosphere, a gravitational attraction which starts to attract a lot of the material around it. So more and more matter kind of falls into this region. As more matter falls into it, more matter is attracted to it. And you start to, within this disk, have basically protoplanets. So you have small spheres which are being formed of the material in this disk falling in on itself due to gravitational attraction. These eventually, in time become planets and so you see since this all formed from a fairly flat disk the planets which are result from this disk are all basically orbiting inside the same sphere once you have start getting more towards the planetary end of stuff the planets actually orbit have gravitational attraction on each other and they cause small eccentricities in the individual orbits which uh, cause these orbits over time to change. Sometimes these changes can be quite drastic and you end up with the planets moving, migrating inwards towards the Sun, or the plane of the planet's orbit in relation to the disk can change. You also have other things, for example Pluto, although it's no longer technically a planet, um, that actually orbits at a very high angle to the orbital plane of a lot of the other planets, so that could be, in fact, a sphere that was travelling through um, space and was simply captured by the sun, like a lot of comets as well. So that came from an entirely different process, which is why it orbits at such a different plane from all the others.
4: Yeah, it's interesting, actually. The The fact that the planets in our own solar system appear to go round in almost uh, the same plane was noticed a long time ago and in fact led to really the first modern theory of how the solar system formed at the end of the 18th century when Kant and Laplace realised this implied that the or suggested very strongly that the solar system formed in what they call the primordial solar nebula this rotating they imagined it as a very hot pancake of gas forming around a, a, a sun being born and in fact, the details of that, of course, is exactly what we're trying to work out with ALMA. And, and largely speaking, they were right. They, they thought it was hot, whereas in fact, we now know that that proto-solar nebula was actually rather cold, maybe 10, 20, 30 degrees above absolute zero. But indeed, as, as Sarah explained, within that rotating disk, somehow the planets emerge and forming you know, the gas giants and the rocky planets and exactly... That prescription, when the rocky planets form, when the gas giants form, how many of them form, those are some of the most exciting questions in astrophysics um, that we're trying to answer today.
5: Would I be right in saying, though, that what's really interesting is that although this model explains our solar system very well, our first results of exoplanets have started to not contradict this model but have been some surprising results planets orbiting much closer than we'd expect or at much higher angles to other planets in the same so- solar system
4: yeah exactly so you know in the last 15 years i suppose you know the big one of the, one of the big breakthroughs in astronomy has been the discovery of lots of exosolar planets and indeed those systems tend not to resemble our solar system in fact as our Measurement techniques are getting better. we are detecting more um, solar system-like objects. But indeed, a lot of the systems have these extreme, very massive planets very close to their stars, the so-called hot Jupiters, orbiting their stars very, very close, uh, almost grazing the surfaces. And those were not predicted by conventional planet formation theories. We now think we understand how they can form, how they can be formed further out, these proto-Jupiters, proto-massive Jupiters, and then be dragged through the disk towards their sons but indeed that that was a surprise when they were discovered
2: Sarah it seems like you're doing my job for me today but what I'm going to do now is actually make Dominic do some work Dominic we've had a question from Jeff Sykes who says when we send probes into space we use a gravity assist this sort of slingshot effect to speed things up he wants to know if we can do the same thing with the light and therefore blue shift some light as it gets slung past a large gravitational body?
3: Well, I'll start by explaining a bit about what a gravitational slingshot actually is. Now, if you imagine that you want to send a space probe to, let's say, Jupiter or Saturn, the big outer planets in the solar system, the simplest way you could do that would be to fire a rocket thruster and drive your rocket straight to the planet you were going to. But that is actually a very expensive approach because these planets are orbiting a long way from the sun and you have to travel out through the sun's quite strong rotational field. And so you typically need to get your spacecraft up to a speed of around 40 kilometres per second to get out that far in the solar system. Now, paths may sound rather counterintuitive, but an easier way to get there is to steer yourself towards Venus, our inner, near neighbour in the solar system. Now, imagine that your spacecraft travelling towards a static body. As you travel towards that body, you accelerate towards it because you feel its gravitational field. As you travel away from it, having gone past it, you slow down because its gravitational field is pulling you back. Now, if that body is moving like Venus, then it can be in front of you when you're travelling towards it. You accelerate towards it But once you've gone past it, it's moved around its orbit, it's no longer pulling you back, and so you've been accelerated by Venus's gravitational field. Now, if you look at, for example, the Cassini space probe, that wanted to get to Saturn, the way it got there was to fly twice past Venus and then once past Earth, each time picking up speed, and after those three gravitational encounters, it was going fast enough to make it out to Saturn at a distance of ten times the Earth's orbit from the Sun. Now, what would happen if you were to do that with light? Well, the problem is light travels incredibly quickly, at 300,000 kilometres per second, as compared to the planets, which, for example, in the case of Jupiter, travels at about 13 kilometres per second around its orbit. Now, for this slingshot effect to work, you need the planet to have moved as you've been travelling past it. And if we are travelling as fast as the speed of light, then unfortunately it won't have moved very far, so the effect will be very slight. But I think there might just about be a detectable blue shift in that photon, but a very small effect.
2: Thanks, Dominic. And thanks to John Richer and Sarah Thompson for helping us to answer your questions. If you have a space science question that you would like answered, then just send it in to us at astronomy at com, or you can tweet at Naked Scientists. That's it for this month's Naked Astronomy. We'll be back next time with more space science, including how internal heat sources mean that there may
3: be far more habitable planets than we've so far predicted. And before that, we'll have more space boffins from Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson. You can find all this and more on our website at thenakedscientist.com slash astronomy.
2: Naked Astronomy is produced by Dominic Ford and me, Ben Valsler, and it comes to you from Cambridge University with support from the Science and Technology Facilities Council. Supported
1: by the STFC, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy.